You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst for MLB.com, joined by MLB.com national content editor Matt Myers. It is Thursday, July 15th. It is the first official day of the second half of the season. We do have one game tonight, Yankees versus Red Sox. Matt and I are going to ditch our usual format for this show and kind of swing around all the divisions. Look at where we stand headed into the second half of the year. We'll each pick one interesting guy from a division that we're focused on watching uh, as the weeks go on. And first, Matt, I, I wanted to ask you just briefly uh, about the All-Star game. So I was in Denver, not for the game itself. I was actually only there for the home run derby. And then I flew out the next day. Um, so I kind of missed, like I was flying home basically as the All-Star game was happening. So I, I sort of missed that part of it. But when I was there, I, I got a kind of a kick out of looking at all the jerseys that people were wearing on the streets, right? And so like, Tons of Rockies jerseys, obviously, and a Tatis and Vlad Jr. and all the other stars of the game. Can I tell you the the two most random jersey sightings I saw, and they both happened to be pirates, right? I saw a dad and what I assume was his son uh, scootering down the street on matching with matching Jacob Stallings jerseys, which I thought was kind of fun. But okay, like Stallings is playing. Here's the one that, that was uh, a kicker. And I saw this at the park, like on the big screen. So I don't know where this person actually was. He was wearing a Pittsburgh Pirates Niger Morgan jersey. And Niger Morgan played for the Pirates from 2007 to 2009, and not even all of 2009. So I want to know the story behind that. I want to know why that guy owns that jersey. I don't think it was actually Niger Morgan. And I want to know why he was wearing it to the All-Star game. That was that was the big one that I saw. I love a good random jersey setting. So that is a... Uh... That is, uh, that's, those, those are quality. Jacob Stallings is from Kansas, which is kind of near Colorado. So maybe it was like his family. I don't know. Um, I did have a couple of people be like, was that Jacob Stallings? I'm like, well, they're playing the Mets right now because it was Sunday. So like, I don't think so. Uh, but, but maybe, um, listen, I was there for the home run derby. We did a show on ESPN too, myself and Jason Benetti and Jessica Mendoza. And it was, it was super fun to be in there. And what I learned was this, I can take all of like, the science and analytics knowledge and all of the stuff I know. And next year, I'm going to just throw it out the window and say Pete Alonso. <laughs> because is there a man more built for home run derbies than Pete Alonso? I don't know if this part came through on the broadcast super clearly or not, but there was a point where he took his time out, not because he needed a breather, but just because he wanted to go like do Hulk Hogan wrestling moves to the crowd and rile them up. He was singing. He was singing. Don't stop believing, which was playing in the park. Like the man is a showman. And uh, we should have the Home Run Derby in Coors Field every year, and we should have Pete Alonso in it every year. I know Atani was like the name everybody, but no, Pete Alonso. And I assume you saw that as well. Well, I have a couple of points I want to make on the Home Run Derby. First, with Alonso, um, it reminded the timeout kind of reminded me of uh, people. Some people might remember this, and I think I saw someone mention this on Twitter. Um, the first season of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, when the guy won. And basically, he was like, I want to use my phone a friend. And he phoned his dad. I was like, hey, dad, I just want to tell you I'm about to win a million dollars because he knew the answer. Um, that's uh, what it reminded me of when Alonzo took that time out where he's like, I know I'm going to win. I'm just going to take my time out to kind of like enjoy this a little bit more. That's that pretty cool. Against, <laughs> that last round against Trey Mancini where he was like – Trey Mancini had a good round and he was just like exhausted. It looked like he was putting everything he had into that last round. And then Alonzo comes up and was like, I know you had a good round, but like pop, pop, pop. 
I'm done. I win. The you know second what? thing, I'll, the second thing I'll say about the Home Run Derby broadcast that you were on, and by far my favorite thing about the broadcast, was there was a moment when the the, the I guess the play by play guy, for lack of a better word, Jason Minetti, I think he was talking about Juan Soto, and talking about his age twenty one season. And he was like, what were you doing when you were 21? And Mike, Mike was like, I, I was like drinking beer with my buddies. And Jessica Mendoza was like, I was in the Olympics. It was like the greatest flex of all time. It was so good. <laughs> I mean, she's not she's not wrong to say that. Um, no. she, she absolutely was. Like there was a point where someone said, oh, we, you know, we should go out and try to shag fly balls. And we're like, uh, no, Jessica, you were an outfielder. You should go flag fly balls. Jason and I should not be flagging fly balls. The other thing I wanted to say about the home run derby was um, that was what the way it ended. That was the Hollywood ending, right? Because you end up with Alonzo and Mancini. And obviously everybody knows Trey Mancini's like incredible story. He overcame colon cancer and, you know, he, he is having a pretty good year this year. And now he's like getting deep into the home run derby. And you think, oh my God, what if he wins? Like what kind of story would that be? And then you realize that no Hollywood writer would write that story that he gets to win. They would always write it where it's like he does great and then comes in second. Like if you think about all the great sports movies, you rarely see them actually winning. So the fact that he got that close and then lost to Alonzo, that was the Hollywood ending. That's that is the take I'm going to have on that. Spe- right? Speaking of Mancini, he is the um, the guest this week on uh, the Bigs, the Xavier Scruggs podcast Um that uh, uh, is uh, new on MLB.com. We had obviously had Xavier as our guest last week. Um, Trey Mancini is the guest this week. I encourage everyone to go and listen to Mancini talk about um, his journey and, you know, going through cancer treatments and coming back and playing and all that it means to him and significance and kind of his entire experience. It's um it's uh it's it's a very it's a very moving conversation yeah it was super cool uh to be in the park for that by the way like the fans colorado fans have little to no connection to the orioles or trey mancini but they all knew his story and he got several standing ovations which was uh pretty powerful and very cool all right we're gonna take a quick break and then matt and i are gonna start looking around the second half of the major league season you know what's a tough pill to swallow watching your team strand runners you know what's an easy pill to swallow The new daily multivitamin from official MLB partner, Roman. The peppermint-coated pills are created by doctors and backed by science. Whether you're a five-tool player or just looking to support your general health, the 23 ingredients target men's everyday nutrient needs and overall well-being. Visit GetRoman.com slash MLB today to learn more and bring your A-game every day. We are back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. Okay, we are at the start of the second half of the season. As I said earlier, for us, it's Thursday morning. Yankees and Red Sox are the only game tonight, and then everybody else kicks off uh, headed into the weekend. And, you know, the trade deadline is two weeks from what? Tomorrow, I guess, from my point of view, which means it's not at all too soon to look ahead and say, okay, like we, we got to get down to our brass tacks here. So we're going to look at each division, kind of um, just reset where things are, where we think they'll be. And then Matt and I have each picked one guy from uh, the, those divisions who we're really interested in watching. And we're going to start with the American League East. So right now, the Sox are one and a half games up on Tampa Bay. And I I got to be honest, Matt, like I've been so focused on the All-Star Game and the Home Run Derby that I hadn't actually looked at the standings for the East in a while. And I sort of thought, like I knew the Orioles were far behind. I sort of thought the first four teams were a little more bunched together than they are, but that's not actually true. Like Boston's up, Tampa Bay's a game and a half behind, and then the Jays and Yankees are eight games back, which I know 
the Yankees have had their struggles over the last couple weeks. I was surprised by that. Um, are either are those teams both like cooked as far as the division goes in your mind? As far as the division goes, um, I think so. I just think that the both the 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 fact that the both if, if it was just one team, if it was just like let's say it was just like just the Red Sox or just the Rays were were in first, and then everyone else was like eight games back. You could see okay, maybe you make a run, but if you have to, like you have to go ahead and pass two quality teams, like it's possible, you know, the Red Sox or the Rays tanks and falls out, like you know falls behind, but like it's unlikely that. Both of them do that. So I think as far as the division goes, the winner will be the Red Sox or the Rays. But I do think the, you know, if you listen to Yankee fans, you would think that they were 28-61, which is actually what the Orioles are. Like, the Yankees are above 500. They are, um, I think, three games out of the wild card in the loss column. Um, so it's like they're very much in, like, the mix. And... Uh, like, I, I think the Yankee fans need to take, take a breath. Like, they can definitely make the wild card. I will be fascinated to see what they do um, before the trade deadline because I think there's a huge expectation that they're going to make some sort of big move. Um, I'm not sure if the Red Sox and Rays will make similar kinds of moves. You know, I think the Red Sox are probably counting a little bit on Chris Sale maybe coming back in some role and being a difference maker for them. And um, I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Well, our, our new podcast producer, Ryan Walsh, is a Yankee fan, and I can just hear him burning with Yankees thoughts <laughs> through, through the muted mic there. I think you're right. Like the Yankees are – three games over 500 and it sort of feels like not, none of it matters if they don't figure out what's going on with Cole and Chapman and Glaber Torres, right? And I mean, Glaber Torres was the guy you wanted to focus on for this division. Like what, what is going on with him? I think 2019 was a fluke, more or less, not a fluke. That's unfair. But I think the uh, the Powerball from that year maybe helped him with the uh, with the home runs and he was never going to really be a 38 home run guy again. Yeah, I, the um, I think I talked about this on a podcast or either in the preseason or early in the in the season. Where like, also, it's not just the, the sort of the, the quote unquote Powerball. It was also what he just did to the Orioles, who were you know, <laughs> right. just, a, a, just an awful team that year. Where if you, and I know you hate to take away data points, but it's like just you know, for as as a thought exercise, if you took away his games against the Orioles, where he had like fifteen homers in eighteen games or something crazy, he was just okay. You know, but like with those numbers, you know, he had a 40 home run season. So there was a really interesting piece today on Fangraphs written by Dan Zimborski, who runs the Zips projection system, um, the projection system. And he basically looked at who are halfway through the year, who were my biggest, who were the Zips biggest success, like who were the guys who, who overshot their Zips projection the most and who undershot them the most based on, uh, I think for hitters, he used weighted runs created plus. And, um, Gleiber was a guy. Gleiber was a guy who undershot it. Was like third in terms of like the the biggest misses on the year. And here's here's what um, here's what Dan wrote. He said at age 21 and 22, he showed the ability to turn on a pitch with authority, posting isolated power numbers above 200 in both seasons. Isolated power is slugging minus batting average. It's a good sense of just like how much you hit for power. Um, but that ability seemed to disappear in 2020 and especially 2021. It's not just that he's making more contact. Making making more contact has resulted in more weak hits. He's also struggling with pitches in the heart of the strike zone. There have been 117 players who have seen at least 300 pitches that Statcast defines as the heart of the zone this year. Torres ranks 105th in slugging percentage and 96th in exit velocity, with a 4.31 slugging on those pitches, paling in comparison to 6.91 in 2018 and 7.76 in 2019. Um, so that's. That sounds, huge bad. that sounds bad. And he also <laughs> says, you know, he said this kind of decline is disappointing, but not completely unheard of. 
Randy Reddy and Chris Spire are high on Torres's <laughs> lists of zips comparisons. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm not I'm not ready to go there. Um, but I mean, obviously, you know, there's the Yankees are 12th in the American League and in, in run scored. Just run score. We're not even talking about rates like run score. There's the Yankees. Like that's a problem. And like Torres is a guy. There's other guys who are not really, you know, hitting all that well or underperforming. But like this was a guy that was supposed to be a cornerstone of this team. And now it's like, well, what's his, you know, what's his role going forward? Is he going to be a difference maker? Because I think the Yankees are going to have to go out and get a bat because of guys like Glaber who just aren't pulling their weight. I agree with you, but I don't think they're going to go get a shortstop, right? Because he's not really a great shortstop. I mean, what they need to do is go get Joey Gallo. And I feel like I feel like that would infuriate a lot of fans because he strikes out a lot and he has a low batting average and sort of feels like you have guys like that. But he has been so good and he, you know, they obviously need a lefty bat. He's a good outfielder, right? So you put him in left, you keep Judge in center, you right, you figure out center with, with um, you know, Gardner and everybody else. Like, I, I would love that. I think that would make a lot of sense. Here, Here's my guy for the East. I actually... I went with Wander Franco. First, I just want to quickly say there were like three Red Sox guys I thought about because Chris Sale is starting a rehab stint. They are calling up Tanner Hoke uh, and they have already called up Jaron Durant, which I'm really excited about him. So uh, those are guys to watch. But for me, it's Wander Franco because they called him up. Tons of hype. Had traded Willie Adamas. He has not done much. We have not talked about him in a while. He's hitting right now 197, 258, a 328 slugging percentage. It's not really bad luck because if you look at the underlying stat cast metrics, they're pretty much like right on with that in terms of quality of contact. But at least like strikeouts are about league average and walks are about league average. And I don't obviously think like he is that bad, but he's 20 years old, you know? So like he came up with all this hype that this is going to be a guy like right away. I remember we talked about his first plate appearance was against, I think, Eduardo Rodriguez, and he got down 0-2, and then he took four balls, and we're like, that was a cool walk. That was a cool plate appearance, and it just hasn't happened yet, and I worry, like, the hype on these guys that are, they're expected to come up and be the best player in the game from, like, day one, because we've seen a lot of guys kind of do that over the last couple years. Um, This doesn't change my opinion of him long term, but it does sort of make me wonder, you know, they're a game and a half out of first place, like, how, how quickly will he figure it out? And help them win. You know, I still think I'm going to pick the Rays over the Red Sox because there's a lot about the Red Sox I don't entirely trust right now. And a game and a half is not that big of a gap, uh, even though the the Fangraphs playoff odds have the Red Sox at like 88% chance. Well, that's to make the playoffs. 58% chance to win the division and 25% chance for the Rays. I'm still going to go with the Rays, but a lot of this kind of comes down to, you know, what will Wander Franco be? Like, where you know, are you are you are you still in on him for this year, not long term? I think so, but this kind of goes back to what we talked about with the trade deadline, right? Where I think some teams are like, oh, we're going to go out and add someone from another organization, and other teams look at their system and say, we have a really good prospect. We think it can make an impact right away. That'll kind of be our equivalent of a midseason acquisition. And I'm certain the Rays f- felt and probably still feel that way about about Franco of like, okay, this is this is kind of our midseason acquisition who's going to give us a boost and raise, raise, our, raise both our floor and, and our ceiling as a team. And I think that's still probably the case. I'm not sure if the, you know, but again, who, who can predict what the Rays are going to do? Um, you know, the other team that, you know, before we move on to the, the AL Centro that could, you know, there's some expectation will make a move presumably for some sort of pitching is the Blue Jays. Um, Cause they're kind of right there. They're basically, they're tied with the Yankees in terms of um, uh, win percentage. And um, there's some belief that they could get back into it, but I'm, I'm a little skeptical because of that pitching. Before we move on from the Rays, can I give you a great Rays trade idea? The Rays always would love to add more pitching, like constantly. You know who the Rays should go get as a starting pitcher? 
old friend Charlie Morton. Think about it. The Braves are toast now that Acuna is hurt, in my opinion. Morton's been pretty vocal that he doesn't really want to leave You know, the, the southeastern area of the United States. He's obviously had success with Tampa Bay. Tell me why Charlie Morton's not a, not a Ray three weeks from now. Like, What's what's a better fit than that? Uh, maybe just, I don't even know. Is he on a one-year deal or a two-year deal? I'm almost certain he is on a one-year deal. One year for $15 million, So he's already more than halfway through it. Uh, it's an interesting thought. Um, I could see it. I could see it. It make a lot of sense. I'm not sure. I mean, like... We'll get we'll get we'll we'll get to the Braves later, but I'm not sure they're they're like they're necessarily. I mean, maybe they should, but I'm not sure they're gonna they're gonna kind of punt the season like that. Well, I wouldn't say punt because he's a 37 year old on an expiring contract. Like I don't think they're gonna trade Freddie Freeman. But we'll, you're right. We'll get back to that. Okay, let's go to the American League Central, and uh, the only team in the American League Central is the White Sox. They are in first place out of one team in the Central. Is sort of how I'm viewing it right now. They're eight games up on Cleveland. Unsurprisingly, well, I guess very surprisingly, Minnesota's in the back there, but unsurprisingly Detroit and Kansas city um, are kind of pulling up the rear as well. There is no possibility I can think of where the white Sox don't win this division. They have 97% odds at Fangrass, And I think that's too low. And it's not because I think the white Sox are unbeatable. It's because Cleveland has no offense and half their pitching rotation is hurt. Like the fact that they are actually three games over 500 is super impressive. Like it's, it's, much better than I thought things would go if you told me before the season that Shane Bieber would get hurt and half the pitchers would get hurt. But there's I I cannot see any other outcome of this other than the White Sox winning this division easily. Tell me I'm wrong. No, that's right. Especially since you know they're 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 I don't know if they're starting to get healthy, but there's actually some some uh, some hope on the way in terms of some of their injured guys, key injured guys coming back. And those are actually I think the two guys you and I both both wanted to talk about. Yeah, I don't think generally we wanted to pick guys from the same team, but since, again, this is the only team in the Central, why not? I'm going to go first on this one. I went uh, with Eli, Eli Jimenez, who um, I think this kind of flew under the radar outside of Chicago, has started a rehab assignment. He's played in three games so far in the minors, three hits and a homer. You're not so much worried about the outcomes as you are uh, about the health. And if he's playing rehab games, I don't have an exact date on his expected return, but it can't be that far away, like a matter of weeks not months, I would think. Now, that would be a pretty big boost for a White Sox team that has just suffered through a ton of different injuries, right? Like Nick Madrigal's out for the year. And as Matt will get into in a second, Luis Robert has been out not all year, but for most of the year. And Yasmani Grandal is hurt. And the whole Yermin uh, Mercedes excitement blew up. And now he's back in the minors. And they DFA'd Adam Eaton the other day. And so in the outfield, they have been playing recently in left field, Andrew Vaughn, who's been okay, actually Better than I thought defensively. We all thought that was going to be a mess, and it, it hasn't been. Uh, in center field, it's been a combination of Adam Engel, Brian Goodwin, and Billy Hamilton. Now, I've had White Sox fans tell me they are all in on the Brian Goodwin experience. He's got a 137 OPS plus and 103 plate appearances. No, <laughs> just no. I like him a lot, but he's bounced around. He's a, he's a fourth outfielder. He's not this guy, but he's been a great fill-in. Uh, and in right field, uh, Goodwin also. And then Gavin Sheets, who's a rookie, who has come up and he has played uh, pretty well, or he's he's hit pretty well. Um, they had Adam Eaton. Obviously, they DFA'd him. And so, you know, there's room for another bat or two out there. Here's my question, right? So Jimenez is going to come back, and I have a great deal of confidence that when he does, he will hit. He is only 24 years old. He's got a career OPS of 22% better than league average. He is, in the best of circumstances, a really poor outfielder. And when I say best of circumstances, I just mean in the sense of like, he's not good at fielding. And in the worst of circumstances, he keeps hurting himself. This is like the third different time he's hurt himself playing the outfield. <laughs> If I was running this team, now that Mercedes is gone, he's my DH. 
like I know people might have thought, oh, well, you can put Vaughn back at D. No, <laughs> like keep Vaughn and left. And Jimenez is your DH. You do not let him touch a glove for the rest of the season, at least, if not longer. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that, you know, Vaughn was sort of an experiment out there to begin with. But that was almost the reason why you could kind of, it almost worked for them because the idea, it's like, well, he's not really, he can't really be any worse than Jimenez. Um, and um, as a hitter, Jimenez is as a fa- as as a hitter, he's one of my favorite players in the game. As a as a fan, I'm most excited to see Jimenez come back of almost any injured player in baseball, just because I love watching him hit. He hits you know majestic home runs. He's someone that in the future I would love to see in the home run derby. But as an analyst, to me, the most important player for them to get back is Luis Robert, and I think that. He's uh, and it's because it's because of the defense and because that he can actually be, play center field and give them like a real center fielder. Like, okay, we can put we can put his name in the lineup. He is our center fielder. He is a quality a quality hitter and a quality defender, and that really just balances out their team a lot. As opposed to kind of trying to fake it with a variety of the names that you you mentioned before. The thing with Robert is he's a little bit behind. Um, uh, Jimenez in his rehab, he's I think he's ramping up baseball activities now, and then he could start a rehab assignment around the beginning of August. So like if all goes well, he can maybe be back in late August or early September. And he was actually really good this year. In 25 games, he'd hit 316, 359, 463. That's a 128 OPS plus with eight homers and four steals. So like he's he was starting to show show himself to be that dynamic player that people hoped he could be and so for me like he's the he's the, the most key player in terms of if like I'm looking filling out the lineup for the White Sox in a postseason series I think he actually has a little bit more importance than uh Jimenez does I agree with you um I think everybody thinks they need to go out and find some sort of second baseman and now that the all-star game is over maybe that's more likely to happen like an Adam Frazier or somebody, or an Eduardo Escobar. The other thing I was thinking about the White Sox is, let's say they get to, well, not let's say, they will get to the postseason. And if you look at their starting rotation, Dallas Keuchel has a pretty nice track record of postseason success, but he's not going to get a start, is he? Right? Because Lance Lynn is probably your number one, and then Rodon and Giolito in whatever order you like. And then Keuchel is at best the fourth starter, and maybe not even if you like Dylan Cease. And I guess that's a good problem to have. <laughs> is you've got Dallas Keuchel and you're probably not going to start him in the postseason. Because you remember last year, that was the whole thing. They had two starters. They didn't have a third starter. And that's basically what got Rick Renteria fired because he tried to piece together a bullpen game and didn't do it that well. But I think in this division, at least we're in agreement, it's White Sox and nobody else. All right, let's go to the American League West. Right now, this is a division where the Astros are up by three and a half over Oakland. Um, Seattle is seven games out, Angels nine, and Texas 19 and a half. I am very out on the Mariners being real. They've been outscored. <laughs> I know they're five games over 500. They've been outscored by 50 runs. And this happens like every year, doesn't it? This is like the third time in four years. The Mariners have a nice first half. And if you look even slightly under the hood, you're like, yeah, no, no, not real. <laughs> that, well, that's what's uh, happening. Let me ask you a question. At what point in a season do you start to take run differential Seriously, because obviously in the first month, like one one or two weird blowouts could totally skew it. Um, and I, to be clear, I don't really believe in the Mariners either. But I'm curious, at what point do you start to look at it as, as like a real indicator of quality of a team? I mean, pretty quickly, because if you look at what's happening with the Mariners now, the reason they're doing so well is they've got this amazing record in one run games, which 
it sounds like a thing that should be a skill, but I, it's, it's not really, I don't think, you know, like I don't want to say it's luck because that's a little unfair. Um, but I, I put more stock in the run differential, you know, and that shows that they just, they just keep getting pounded. And I don't know if you look at, if you look at the, um, the totality of their season and they kind of front loaded it a little bit. Like if you go back to, let's say the end of April, they are a 500 team since the end of April, you know, and then they keep getting outscored. I don't think they're going to sell. Like I thought for sure they would trade Hanniger and that probably isn't going to happen. Um, I think I saw they called Kelnick back up, so it'll be kind of fun to watch him, but I I'm pretty out on them still being a part of this race and they're not even in first place. They are, you know, not in second place because it's kind of a, a two team race in my opinion, Oakland and Houston, uh, Houston's up by three and a half games over Oakland. I feel like we've kind of talked about Houston a lot on the show because it felt like for a while nobody was uh, other than the negative things. And it was like, hey, wait a minute. This team is like, it's actually really good. There's much better starters than you know about. And they've got the lowest strikeout rate in baseball again. And like historically adjusted, they have one of the lowest strikeout rates in baseball uh, pretty much ever. And you, I, I'm really happy that you chose this guy. Your guy is Zach Greinke. And I love talking about Zach Greinke. <laughs> The, the reason I want to talk about Granky is because I think you know he's still with, with you know with with Verlander out. Granky is nominally their number one starter, and he's still pretty good. Um, you know, like an ERA about three. I think it's three three five nine. He's still he's still a, a quality major league starter, but you kind of you, st- you still kind of don't know what you're going to get with him on a game to game basis. And I always feel when I watch him, I'm like, okay, maybe this is the end. You know, he's 37 years old. He's now just totally just like a a, uh, a junk baller. It's like him in the AL and Adam Wainwright in the NL. These guys who used to be these like really dynamic um, starters with like these fantastic repertoires are now just getting by totally with guile. And it's cool to watch. But, you know, Grinky has six starts this year of less than five innings pitched. A couple of them have been like real stinkers. Um and you just always feel like ah, maybe this could be the end for him. And then if the wheels do fall off with Greinke, I look at the Astros and then I start to get concerned in terms of, okay, maybe this is this is the world in which the A's do catch them in which like this, you know, we know, I believe in the lineup fully. They, I believe in the Astros lineup. They're going to score runs. But there's a, a precarious nature to their their rotation that to me gives the A's a, a sliver of hope. I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. If the Astros line up, what is their one hole, in your opinion? Whew, um, you are really putting me on the spot. Um, the, answer here, uh, the answer here is center field. Um, <laughs> I was trying yes. to lead you in a direction here. Um, because Miles Straw, right? It's yes. kind of a speedy, you know, very fast, but more of a backup. I was looking up something else this morning. And um, if you look over the last 30 days of baseball, Miles Straw has been one of like the 20 best hitters in baseball, which was like, stunning to me he has been not crushing it because that's not his game and i'm sure a lot of it is just like BAPP speed stuff uh but he's been really good and i don't necessarily think that's him but it might be good enough to prevent them from like desperately going out to get a center fielder uh my guy's matt olson and i think i think maybe you uh this was the week you were gone and david adler was on with me we talked a lot about matt olson uh he has been really phenomenal in a way that i think not a lot of people have noticed like if you look at the American League MVP race, obviously Otani is the front runner and Vlad Jr. is probably in second place. Matt Olson, I think, is the number one guy after that. You know, and maybe you want to say, you know, Bogarts or or you know, Devers or Martinez or somebody from the Red Sox, and that's fine. Um, but Matt Olson has been fantastic. He's cut his strikeout rate like almost in half. And if you look at his numbers this year, you know, he's got a, a 161 OPS plus, 
and 23 homers. He was fun in the home run derby too. Uh, and again, for a guy like that to like literally cut his strikeout rate in half while maintaining his power is super impressive. And it was a really good defensive first baseman, obviously, but first baseman don't quite get the credit that other positions do. So he's not going to win the MVP because Otani will or Vlad will. But I feel like it's easy to miss uh, what he's doing, you know, and he he's a guy I'm excited to watch just to to see what happens, because it's like, listen, Otani hasn't done this for a full season yet. There's a, a chance doing one of the many things he does. Maybe he gets injured or something. And it's kind of the same thing for Vlad Jr. He's never performed like this for a full season. And it's not like the Jays are in first place. I don't think Olsen's going to win the MVP, but I feel like we should at least be talking about him in that way, because he's a big part of why the A's are not that far behind the Astros. One of the A's guys that's interesting to me that this is uh, is on my radar um, that I almost brought up as my guy, but I'll bring him up now anyway, so we can still talk about it, is uh, James Caprellian, who's been interesting this year. His 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 raw numbers are you know like his like you know baseball card numbers are been very good. Um, you know he was he's got a two point nine ERA and eleven starts, sixty two innings, um, striking out more than a batter per inning, um, one forty ERA plus. And he's interesting because he's like the he's like not even a post type sleeper. He's like a post post type sleeper. It's like he's a you know he came he was like the key piece I think the the A's got from the Yankees in the Sunny Gray trade in 2017, and you know he was a first round pick of the Yankees. I think he went. I think he was one of those guys who had TJ right when he got drafted. I don't know if they knew he was gonna. It was one of those. I don't, I don't know if he got TJ right before he was drafted or it happened right after. But he's actually been pretty good. But if you look at his you know stat cast numbers, they're they're pretty. They're less good, um, but he's someone that I'm kind of keeping an eye on as like an interesting guy in terms of okay, if the A's do catch the, um, uh, there's been so much focus on all like the other young arms that the A's have that like Caprillion is kind of like sneakily kind of like moved into the conversation and has been uh, has uh, at least been had solid production for them, solid results. Whether or not like the performance will match it, uh, will dovetail with it perfectly remains to be seen. All right, so if the season were to end today, we would have White Sox, Astros, and Red Sox winning the division, and we would have Rays and A's in the wild card, which would be a rematch of the 2019 wild card, although I think this time it would be in Tampa, not in Oakland. There's some pretty big gaps in these divisions. Are you are you willing to go on the record right now on July 15th and say those five teams as constituted now are the playoff teams? Uh, no, I still, I still think the Yankees are going to make a run at the, the second wild card. I really do. Uh, so I'm not – I don't feel as confident in Oakland hanging – Hanging on uh, to that to that to that second wild card spot, I really I think the Yankees are going to make I think the Yankees are going to make that interesting. The other four teams, I feel pretty confident, will end up in the playoffs. I'm going to say those will be the five teams, but not necessarily in that order. Like I think Tampa Bay still got a shot to take down the Red Sox for the East and then put the Red Sox in the wild card. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with a look at the National League. I'm Xavier Scruggs, host of the Bigs. And this ain't your average sports podcast. This is MLB's first player-to-player show. You'll hear behind-the-scenes insights from guys like Chicago White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson. You know, I was the youngest, and, you know, being black coming up, man, it was definitely weird, you know, trying to have some locker room presence. I formed myself into a player I am today, so now it's a lot of respect that comes with that. Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher David Price. Double A was in Montgomery. We had six guys staying in a two-bedroom. I slept on an air mattress under the dining room table. And my guy, St. Louis Cardinals pitcher, Jack Flaherty. My mom was scared. She was like, it's a scary place to be in because I don't want, you know, she saw what happened to Kaepernick. The best way to hear these conversations is to subscribe. Find the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. 
We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers, we're looking at each of the divisions headed into the second half. And as we look into the National League East, there was huge news today out of New York where the Mets have announced that they're going to wear their black jerseys again. Uh, I think at the end of the month on a Friday night and several other Friday nights, Pete Alonso is going to be stoked. They haven't worn the black jerseys since 2012. I don't know what your feelings are on them. I, obviously, you have been in many Mets games in your life. And my opinion was this. I don't love the black jerseys, but I'm fine with them as like a once a week thing, as long as they don't screw up the regular jerseys with like all the black shadows, because that's that's what they had done, you know, 15 years ago. And I hated that. So if you leave those alone and just add like a special, you know, Friday blackout jersey, I, I'm actually I'm OK with that. My take on the black jerseys has always been that they're kind of ugly, but they represent a really uh, good time in Mets history that I think most people associated with those teams from the late, like the the Piazza, Ventura, Edgardo Alfonso Mets from the, the late the late nineties. That's kind of when they were at their kind of their peak of popularity. And so you associate it with a time and a place. It's kind of like a song you liked in high school that you're kind of embarrassed to have liked, but when you still hear it, you still kind of pop your head. You're like, oh, I, I do kind of like that song, even though it's kind of embarrassing. That's how I think of the black jerseys, and I think it's going to be cool because I think when they wear them on Friday nights. City Field is going to be like it's. They're going to wear them home Friday night, starting July thirtieth. The place will be rocking, and if they win their first couple of games wearing the black jerseys, I bet you they start wearing them a lot more. That was a ruse to try to get me to talk about what ska songs I liked in nineteen ninety eight. By the way, and I, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I think you're right. Okay, so let's talk about the East for a minute. The Mets are up by three and a half over Philly, four over Atlanta, six over Washington, and nine over Miami. And this division, I hate. I hate to say this sentence, but I don't know how else to do it. The Mets are the only team I trust. That's like the most famous of famous last words because you expect the Mets to Mets this up at some point. But even if they do, it's like, well, who who in the Phillies bullpen are you trusting? Like literally anybody? The Braves just lost to Cunha, which is like a crushing blow. And also Ian Anderson is having shoulder trouble now. Um, the, the Nationals, like sort of as expected, like they went on that nice run when Schwarber was crushing the ball. Well, then Schwarber got hurt, and I remember um, I was looking at their their end of the first half schedule a couple weeks ago, and I was like, oh, well, yeah, they're on a nice run, but they're ending their schedule with Tampa, the Dodgers, the Padres, and the Giants, um, and I got, they actually won both games against Tampa, but then they lost nine of their first 11 to start July, and I have never trusted that team, and I don't now, and Miami, you know, they have a nice run differential, but they're also in last place, so it's like, do I fully trust the Mets? I do not. Is there literally anybody else I think is going to do better? No. <laughs> we we talked about the Mets like a month ago. And I think at the time you'd asked me, do I believe like – at the time they had, a, I think, a three-and-a-half game lead. And you asked me if I believed in them. And I said, let's talk again. They had a, At that point, they, they had a stretch of like 33 games in 31 days. They had a bunch of doubleheaders from makeups from from early in the season when they had rainouts. And they, their, first season, their first series got canceled because of uh, COVID protocols. Or not canceled, postponed rather. I said, talk to me at the end of that stretch, and we'll see where uh, where things stand. I think they're, if not ex- basically, if not exactly, at the same place, three and a half games up. And in addition to that, and this is sad for baseball, but I guess good for if you're only looking at the Mets from a bottom line perspective. Like Ronald Cunha Jr. is out for the season, and I think I think the Braves are the team that I know I was thinking would be the, the biggest threat to the Mets. So with that knowledge, I agree with you. It's sort of like. Well, if the Mets aren't going to win the division, when what year are they going to win the division? Because it's it's very very well set up for them. You mentioned the Phillies bullpen. I mean, if there was a team 
to go out and trade for Craig Kimbrell. Like that's the team, right? Uh, the, Bra- well, the, the Cubs are the Cubs are going to be sellers. Like that's the team, and that's the 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 best difference making reliever that's probably available on the trade market. No, uh, he, yes, he is. I, I was I would have gone with the Blue Jays because I think they could desperately need him as well. But certainly nothing wrong with the Phillies in that equation. I don't think he would fix the problems they have, to be honest. I think I think there are a lot of different problems there. Um, I want to talk about Juan Soto for a second. So Juan Soto, it's funny. He's got a 143 OPS plus, so 43% better than league average. And we're almost sort of looking at it like, ugh, what's wrong? Because <laughs> last year, and it was a 60-game season, he's not really – a 200 a 223 ops plus guy like he was last year but you know he's so young we all talked him up like he was ted williams and it hasn't quite been there yet and he's mostly hitting too many ground balls i was stunned when i was doing home run derby research that when he puts the ball in the air when he hits a fly ball or a line drive the ball comes off his bat as hard as it does joey gallows which i don't think a lot of people would have expected and then he went out and he did really well in the home run derby he hit a ball 520 feet and they turned the humidor off and it was at cores and so here's here's my argument. That might be the the longest ball we are ever going to track because there's not a better scenario than no humidor at Coors, right? The best in-game home run was uh, 505 feet by Nomar Mazzara a couple years ago on a crazy windy day in Texas. And after that, it was literally John Carlos Stanton at Coors Field, 504 feet. The, the, the biggest home run derby home run we tracked was Aaron Judge at 513 feet in Miami a couple years ago. And so I guess what you would need to do is get Judge or Stanton on a hot day at Coors with the humidor turned off, which is never going to happen. So I think there's a chance we just saw the longest home run uh, that we're ever going to see tracked. And he just gave my favorite quote I think I've ever heard. Like everybody loves to talk about, oh, you're in the home run derby. You're going to screw up your swing. It's going to mess up your second half. It's not true. Like it's a myth. We've, I've detailed this many times in articles on our site where it's basically like to even be an all-star home run derby or not, you get there because you've had everything go right. You've been healthy and you've had a good first half. There's lots of reasons that might not happen anyway. And it doesn't hurt you any more to be in the derby than it does to be just an all-star. So here's the quote he gave. Uh, it might mess with the swing of all the guys that are locked in. But I think it's going to fix mine because I'm hitting too many ground balls. I hope it fixes my swing trying to put the ball in the air. And there are lots of reasons that I want to see Juan Soto go out and mash just because like, I love him as a player. He's one of the young superstars, and it would just be great if he had a great second half. But if he does that after saying that, that'll be it. That'll be like, I'm done. Like I, I, I'm finished. I've accomplished everything I've ever wanted to do because that would be my favorite thing. And I just hope it happens. <laughs> That would that would be that would be awesome. Yeah, I love that analysis that you did about the home run derby curse pointing out, and you kind of alluded to it that basically the average all star performs worse relative to their first half and the second half than the average home run derby. Like it's a, it's it's as, as much of an all star curse as it is, and it's not really a curse. It's just that you were just having for many players were just having an, an unsustainably good first half, and there was kind of nowhere to go but but down. Um, to put it bluntly, that's great, uh, man. That's it's dark. <laughs> The guy I want to talk about is Michael Conforto. Um, we talked about the Mets a little bit before. You know, there's been a lot of made of a lot of the, the Mets kind of key players not really having good first halves offensively. There's a lot of talk about Francisco Lindor, the new acquisition in the first month of the season. Uh, Dom Smith was kind of play, coming out of a down year. Pete Alonso was okay. Jeff McNeil was okay, kind of bad. But reality, the only guy who's like really n- 
been well below all year long is Conforto because of the last 30 days um, and really almost for the last two months, for example, um, Lindor's really picked it up. So the last 30 days, the Mets by weighted run trade plus Lindor 130, Brandon Nimmo 122, Dom Smith 120, Pete Alonso 104. So all either slightly to well above average. Like those guys have actually kind of, I mean, Nimmo has been good all year when he wasn't hurt, um, but Lindor and Smith and Alonso have really kind of stabilized and been maybe not the best version of themselves, but been like, Within the within the error bars of what you would expect them to be as players, right? But the one guy who's really been below it all year long, and I know he missed some time, is Michael Conforto. Um, his weighted runs created plus in the last thirty days is seventy two, um, which is well below the league averages of one hundred. I think his his mark for the year is ninety six. He's still walking a lot, uh, but not really doing much else. He only has three home runs on the season. He's slugging three hundred one. Uh, so that's the guy where I think if like the, not just if the Mets are going to kind of really, you know, I don't want to say run away with the division, but like, you know, comfortably win the division is they need him to be like the good version of himself. Um, the good news, I guess, is his expected weight on base is 358, which is not amazing, but it suggests that he's been better than than it seems. Uh, he has a 268 batting average, on bat- batting average on balls in play, which shows a little bit of flukiness. Granted, he hits into the shift a lot, so I wouldn't say it's like entirely um, out of the realm of possibilities, but he's the guy I'm watching uh, because if he can kind of raise, if he can raise his game, the Mets will win that division comfortably. You know, it's been awesome for the Mets and obviously he hasn't been back that long, but Brandon Nimmo has been fantastic. You know, there's only been 10 games, but it seems like every time I watch him, he's getting on base at the top of the lineup, which is like exactly what they needed. <laughs> if you look like, at the on base leaders over the last five years, uh, he's probably top 10. Like he's up there with, with, you know, super superstar names. He's he knows how to get on base. Yeah, he's he's a lot of fun to watch. All right, going to the central. Um, I'm so close. I just need like one more game to happen. Maybe it'll happen tomorrow, and then I can say that my one to five preseason predictions in the central are dead on. If we can just like freeze the division in stone after that, like heading into the season, I said it was going to be Milwaukee, Cincinnati, then St. Louis and Chicago, and finally Pittsburgh, and. Uh, St. Louis fans were very upset about that, that I had them in third place because they just got Nolan Arenado. And like, that, of course, Arenado is fantastic. And I was like, well, I just I don't trust the lineup or the outfield or they weren't one Arenado away from being good. And they really have kind of fallen apart. Like the pitching has been kind of a mess. Flaherty has been hurt and they can't throw strikes. And right now, uh, Milwaukee has been great. So they're four up on Cincinnati. The Cubs and the Cardinals are eight back and the Pirates are much further back than that. The Cubs have completely fallen apart. Like they are... They are done. And the question to me is really, um, can the Reds overtake the Brewers? And I sort of feel like they can. Like the Reds bullpen has been surprisingly poor. So that's a lot of of concern for me. But I'm going to go ahead and talk about my guy uh, so that I can do it before Matt does it, because we both actually wanted to talk about Luis Castillo. And uh, I kind of stole it from him. Luis Castillo got off to an atrocious start, like a really bad start. And even now, if you were to look at his surface level numbers, you'd see three and ten. 465 ERA. This guy stinks. He did stink for the first 10 starts of the season. Through May 23rd, he had a 761 ERA, and everybody was trying to figure out, like, man, this guy was like a dark horse Cy Young contender. What What is going on? In his last nine starts, a 211 ERA, only two home runs. He's using his sinker more. I honestly I looked briefly, and I couldn't see, like, an obvious thing that he'd changed, so I don't really just want to say it was bad luck and good luck, although there's always elements of that in there. Um, but if he is the guy that we all sort of thought he would be, and you have, you know, Castellanos mashing and Winker mashing, like I'm still pretty in on the Reds, and yet I'm still going to say the Brewers 
because the Brewers pitching is so good. And Adamas has been this phenomenal addition for them. I, I, I agree with everything you said. I've been pushing the Reds, the bandwagon all year. I like that team, but I think the, the Brewers, the Brewers pitching is just too good for the, 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 the Reds to overcome. It's, it's, I wouldn't say that zero chance of it happening. I think it's, it's still a division worth monitoring. Uh, but I think the, 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 the Brewers pitching and just you know, over, overall depth will, will carry them to the division. Although speaking of the Brewers, the one guy I want to talk about is Christian Yelich because amazingly the Brewers have been able to do this with Yelich being pretty, I won't say poor, but just, but just kind of okay. It's a, a very sort of similar to what we're talking about with, with Conforto before where he's not really hitting for average, but he's walking a lot. He's not hitting for average or power, but he's walking a lot. So this, Overall, he's been an above-average hitter. He has a 116 weighted runs created plus. But, you know, you, you really want to see a little more than a 369 slugging percentage from Christian Yelich. There's a really interesting piece um, recently on Fangraphs that Justin Choi did sort of trying to di- diagnose what is going on with, uh, with Yelich. And basically his takeaway was, and I encourage you to go read the piece, is basically that pitchers used to challenge Yelich in the zone a lot early in his career. A lot of people might remember this. In their early years of StatCast, he was kind of the poster boy for for launch angle or not putting the ball in the air, where it was like, oh, this is when he was with the Marlins, like this is a good hitter, but he's really almost a throwback singles ground ball hitter. His In 2015, the year, first year of StatCast, uh, Christian Yelich's average launch angle was zero, which was, I think was maybe second lowest only to Billy Hamilton in baseball that year. Like, he did not put the ball in the air. And then he went to Milwaukee. He turned his career around. You know, he won that MVP. In 2019, his average launch angle was over 11 degrees. So he was a different hitter. So Justin Choi was kind of looking into it and sort of showed that like early in his career, pitchers challenged Yelich in the zone. And then he started to get the ball in the air and he showed more power. And then you saw that the number of pitches he saw in the zone took a huge dive in 2018 and 2019. In the last two years, it's it's really creeped up, and now pitchers are th- challenging him in the zone the way they were early in his career. Almost like I dare you to to hit for power against me. I don't think you can, and he hasn't. Like they're basically, they're sort of he's proving them right because he hasn't really hit for power, and it's especially notable when he's behind in the count that they're still challenging him in the zone. So. Obviously, the Brewers can succeed and win without the 2018 version of Christian Yelich. But I think if they're, if you want to see them as a World Series winning team, you want to see some approximation of that version of Christian Yelich if you're the Brewers or a Brewers fan. I find their outfield so fascinating, right? Everything you said about Yelich, yes. Uh, Lorenzo Cain has been kind of the forgotten man because he mostly didn't play last year and he's been hurt and somewhat ineffective this year. Like I love watching him when he's at full strength. And Jackie Bradley Jr. has always been one of my favorites, and he has not hit really at all this year. But if you can find a, a way to get, you know, just Kane and Bradley kind of playing like the way they've played in the past, that's those are two of the most, I think, fun and obviously defensively stellar outfielders in the game. Okay, let's go to the most interesting division, the National League West. This is where the fun one is. Right now, the Giants are still in first place. They're up by two over the Dodgers. They're up by six over San Diego. And Colorado and Arizona are obviously very far behind. Um, the Giants, I think, are surprising people in the sense that this just—it wasn't just a hot start. You know, they are still here, and they're for real. There's, you know, they have some injury issues as everybody does. Um, but I, I am completely buying into the Giants. I'm still going to pick the Dodgers, I think, but I, I feel less confident about it. You know, like I think 
you hope to get more from Betts and Bellinger uh, and Corey Seager, who's been hurt, than you've gotten so far. And they, I think, are just the more talented team, but they have like real starting pitching issues right now. Like Walker Bueller's great. Love Walker Bueller. No concerns about Walker Bueller. Julio uh, Arias has been fantastic, but we're halfway through the season and he's already uh, set a career high in innings. So that's a little worrisome. I can't believe he's only 24 years old, by the way. I feel like I watched him make his debut like six years ago. Clayton Kershaw had been really good, but now he's on the, the DL with uh, with like arm soreness and it's not expected to be serious or the aisle, excuse me. And, you know, that is always a concern. Um, Tony Gonsolin has been somewhat inconsistent. Trevor Bauer is probably never pitching again, at least for the Dodgers this year, which is for the best. David Price is sort of working back up. They they really miss Dustin May. That's the one. Like he looked so good in his first five starts and, and then he got hurt and he's out for the year. I don't know where you get a starter from. Like this is applicable to pretty much everybody. I, I this team needs a starter so bad. And yet I'm still picking them. All right. Where are you on that? I'm I'm picking them because of the guy I want to talk about, and you mentioned him before, which is Cody Bellinger. And you have to give him a little bit of a pass because he's missed. He's had two separate IL stints, one for a, a hairline fracture in his left leg and one for a, a, a tight hamstring. So he's only played in 34 games. And this could just be you know, 141 plate appearances. So it could be some just small sample size weirdness. But man, when he has played, he's been really not good. Uh, it, uh, weighted runs created plus of 70. He has only four home runs. And the hard hit rate is way down. That's kind of the thing that kind of would be alarming to me a little bit. Again, it could just be small, simple size weirdness. But, you know, two years ago when he was an MVP, his hard hit rate was 46%. Right now it's below 32%. And la- even last year it was 42%. So that's something that I'm, I'm monitoring in terms of Cody Bellinger. But the reason I'm bullish on the Dodgers is that they're not in first place and basically have gotten nothing from the guy who should be their best position player. Whereas the Giants, on the other hand, have basically every one of their players performing at somewhere near the the high mark of what you would expect of them. So for that reason, the starting pitching kind of obviously notwithstanding, I'm still picking the Dodgers to win the division. I mean, you mentioned starting pitchers who, I mean, their starting pitchers are going to get traded. Who are some names who would you, you think would be fits on the Dodgers or we should be watching in terms of starting pitchers who could get moved? There are no starting pitchers. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the problem. I, I mean, look around. Like, you know, the Rock. Maybe the Rockies will trade Jonathan Gray. I don't know what the Rockies are going to do. You know, is there a pirate you want with the Marlins trade their young starters? Probably not. I don't think Max Scherzer gets traded. Kyle Gibson. I feel like I should look into Kyle Gibson, Gibson a little more just to figure out how he went from. I don't know. I don't want to say mediocre, but just. Someone I never paid much attention to and to someone who now seems like he's great. I don't quite understand that. <laughs> I don't think the Mariners will trade Yusei Kikuchi. Um, I mean, you can get like Jay Happ from the Twins. Like, fine. Where? Where are you going here? What about, what about, what about Jose Barrios or Kenta Maeda? Uh, Jose Barrios would be great, but he is not going to come cheaply, right? Like you, you, this is like top prospect trade for Jose Barrios. I have a hard time seeing that come together in the next two weeks. I, th- I mean, he, to me, in some ways, he might be the most interesting player to me at the trade deadline for that reason, because I could see a few teams being interested, a few like real contenders being interested in adding a, a, a starter of that caliber, uh, namely the, the Dodgers being one and maybe even the Mets, too. And so I think they're actually because the lack of kind of rentals out there that Barrios, yeah, he might he might cost you a top prospect. But if you, you know, if you want to win the World Series, he could be a difference maker and you also have him for for next season, so you, you're you're not just trading for 
for rental. So he's kind of the name I'm watching. I would think, to your point about the Rockies, that Herman Marquez should be on the block, or the Rockies at least should be considering what they could get. They're telling, they're telling at least publicly, they're saying he is off the table. We're not considering trading him, uh, which seems crazy to me because to me, if you're the Rockies, nothing should be off the table. But here we are. I, I mean, I honestly think that they have staffing problems because it wasn't just that Bradich left and Bill Schmidt replaced him. Then two of the other assistant GMs left as well. Like they, I don't know how they like talk to all twenty nine other teams right now. There was one trade idea I liked. It's not mine. It was um, my friend John Wiseman, who for, for Dodger thoughts for many years said, "You know, it would be a, a perfect reunion, Kenta Maeda back to the Dodgers." And I'm like, "Oh, I kind of like that one. Like that makes a ton of sense." You know, uh, they need someone who can start or maybe be a little flexible in the postseason. He's obviously familiar with the Dodgers. I think I think that one makes a ton of sense. The the guy I wanted to talk to or talk about is um, Fernando Tatis Jr. I'm not exactly shining a light on some unknown here, uh, but he's been he's been fantastic. And I think maybe we talked about this again when you weren't here, Matt. If you look at his defensive metrics, even traditional metrics, he looks like he's had an awful season, right? Leads the world in the errors and he's a negative and outs above average and everything else. But if you go and break it down by month, which uh, David and I did, it there's like a clear improvement here, like terrible in April, not so great in May, better in June and, and pretty good in July. And, you know, you usually don't want to break down defensive metrics monthly like that. But when you look at him, you know, his first year, he was a wreck defensively. And last year was really good. And then this year, it looked like he took a step back. And now it's it's sort of resolving himself. And the question with him on defense has never, ever been about skill or talent. You know, like, it's not like he doesn't have the ability to, you know, get to balls that are out of everybody else's range. It's mostly been about, you know, kind of the quote unquote easier plays. You know, maybe he throws those balls away and you always sort of figured that he would figure that out. And I think it's happening in season again. And when you combine that with his bat, I mean, listen, he's got, he's got an OPS over a thousand, right? He's going to hit, I don't know, 45 homers and steal 38 bases or something like that. He's 22 years old. And not that nobody's talking about them, him because obviously they are. It's still not enough because I think he's the MVP front runner for me right now. He could be the first player to lead a, lead a league in home runs and stolen bases. I think it's since Chuck Klein in like 1932, <laughs> which is which is incredible and something that I'm very much rooting for. Acuna also had a chance to do that, of course, but he's hurt now, so uh, he's not going to be doing it. So with Tatis, you kind of mentioned it. That's that's the only thing I worry about with him is this this idea in a big game that he's going to flub a routine grounder. That's that's like the only kind of black mark on his game. But if the improvement hopefully is real, and we don't we don't see that see that happen. My concern with the Padres is the, is their starting pitching. Right, like you look at you look at Blake Snell and Chris Paddock, and they've just both been really underwhelming. And you wonder where those innings are going to come from for that team. Because at this point, especially with Paddock, it's like, okay, maybe there was that excitement where it looked like maybe he'd be this intriguing front front of the line arm when he first came up in 2019. But at this point, that was basically for two months. Since like the first two months of 2019, he's been just a guy or 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 kind of worse. And Snell, we've talked about him ad nauseum on this podcast. He might just be okay, you know, great great on his best day, but otherwise erratic and doesn't go deep into games. So that's my concern with the Padres. That said, I'll kind of kick it back to you, the question you posed to me in the AL. In the NL right now, the division leaders are the Giants, Brewers, and Mets. The wild card would be, if the, if the game was played today, would be Padres at Dodgers. Do you think that is where we will be when the season ends? 
I'm going to give you the same answer, which is those five teams, yes, but this structure, no, because I do think the Dodgers will win the West. And this is what I like about this Western division race, because we still have this somewhat traditional playoff structure this year and not, not the expanded one we had last year, which is that winning that Western division now is so, so valuable, right? Because if you are, you know, right now it's the Dodgers and Padres, right? But whichever two teams has that all California wildcard game, which we all expect is going to happen. So you either have to go in and face Walker Bueller or Kevin Gausman or Darvish, if he's healthy, like in a one game winner take all, where the team that wins the division gets to kind of kick it and then wait for you to come out of that and win and then have to throw your second or third best starter, right? Like it's incredibly valuable to win that division. And that's, I think those teams are, especially the Dodgers and the Giants, because the Padres a little further back, are going to try really hard to add to make sure that happens. Because why, why would you want to be in that wild card game? That is, that's brutal. You want to win that division. So you're, to answer your question, those five teams, yes, but the wild card game is going to be Giants and Padres probably in San Francisco, which now that I think about it, as I say it out loud, sounds super duper fun. I want to see that. <laughs> what about you? I agree. I think it's going to be- I hate to be like, I agree with every word that you said, but I basically agree with every word that you said. I do think the Dodgers will end up, starting pitching woes aside, I think ultimately they will end up winning that division and it will be a Giants-Padres wild card. But man, a Dodgers-Padres wild card would be even Ooh. more awesome in Ooh. my opinion. I mean, there's no wrong answers here. Like any of those three teams. I mean, think about it this way, like Dodgers-Giants in a one-game wild card, a little bit of history there, that would be a blast. And uh, that that whole race is going to be, I think, the most fun for me. Matt and I always like to end our show picking a rant and a rave. We're not going to do players you need to know because we just talked about a bunch of players. Here's my rant, and it's very specific to the All-Star game. We all know that there are some like real actual issues in baseball that we should work on resolving, whether it's pace of play or strikeouts or labor issues or whatever. Like There are real issues, and we have talked about them on the show. So it's super frustrating to me when people sort of invent issues that aren't really there. And I was shocked. And how much talk I heard this week, and mostly from like senior baseball writers, not just like fans and, and you know players, about the players who chose not to show up to the All-Star game. Would it be nice if they were all there? Sure. Uh, is it fun to laugh that none of the four Astros showed up? It is absolutely fun to laugh at that. But that talk like dominated the conversation to an extent I was surprised about, because first of all, it's a long season. And I don't have a big deal with some of these guys saying, listen, I'm banged up. Uh, I'd rather not get on a plane and, you know, re- recover from my injury or my wife's pregnant or whatever. And then when you look at the guys we had, I mean, we had Otani starting against Scherzer. We had Otani leading off and Tatis and Vlad Jr. Like, I get it. There's probably a line where it's like, OK, uh, the All-Star game is being started by Jay Happ and Matt Harvey. And that's not great. We're nowhere near that. Like, we had all the stars. It was super fun. Would it have been nice to see some of the other guys? Sure. I, I could not believe how much people were talking about this. It was like inventing something to gripe about just to have something else to gripe about. And why do we need to do that? Here, here. I'm with you on that. No one's going to remember that Mookie Betts and Jacob deGrom didn't, didn't play in this game. What they will remember is Otani starting as the pitcher and the DH and Vlad Guerrero Jr. hitting one to, you know, Wyoming. So that's that's what people are going to remember. Uh, it was it was an enjoyable game. It is what an all star game is, and always and often a lot of the star players don't show up, and we forget about it a week later. And we're excited when Mookie Betts and Jacob Degrom are healthy in September and playing in playoff races. My rant, and I, I realize I preface this by saying I realize that we just spent a podcast talking about playoff odds, and we cited playoff odds a couple of times. That said, 
one thing I think a lot of people do, and it's, in some ways it is a a problem brought on by quote unquote you know the baseball analytics community bringing the playoff odds into the into the conversation. But I think that when used incorrectly, they can be sort of uh, uninformative. I think I see a lot of people treating playoff odds as gospel of just like, oh well, the play you know this team is a twenty percent odds of making the playoffs, therefore like they should sell. Like it doesn't really work that way. The playoff odds are not destiny. They are great rules of thumb. They are good guideposts. I think of them more as like tiers. Like, okay, where are we? Are we in the tier of teams that are like 80% plus? Are we in the tiers of like, you know, 30 to 60? Are we in below 10%? There's, there's some guidelines you can follow. But we're also at the point in the season where one like five-game winning streak can swing your playoff odds significantly. And if that's the case, then like you need to keep that in mind. These things are still pretty volatile. Other than the White Sox, that's not going to change. They're definitely going to win the playoffs and win their division. But other than that, there's still a ton of volatility here, and people need to just take a step back and not treat them as if these are these are these are destiny. Uh, I guess I have two thoughts on that. One of them is is yes, you're right because even when something has like a 95% chance of happening, there's still a 5% chance that it won't. The other one is um, I, this joke probably won't make any sense to you because I don't think you watched this show. But last night I finished watching Loki and now I believe that there is a man at the end of time who has written everything and knows exactly what's going to happen. That man is Albert Pujols, by the way. He'll be there at the end of time. And so uh, most of these are right. <laughs> yeah, not, I, I know what you're saying. Like They're not gospel because they're not telling you the future. Um, but also they're based on a lot of actual information. Like the fact that the Mariners have pretty lousy playoff odds, even though they're five games over 500, it's not just because that's where they are. It's because you look at all the underlying like projections and it's like, oh yeah, you're being outscored. And uh, most of these guys are not like, you know, all-star caliber. So I, I have no problem with them having low playoff odds because despite the fact they've gotten to where they are now, I have little confidence in them doing that for the rest of the season. And isn't that really all we want? Yeah, it's just it's it's my point is they're guidelines. They're guidelines, and they're interesting. Like if you were the the GM of the Mariners, I'm sure Jerry Depoto is has seen the Fangraphs playoffs odds, a, a neutral party's playoff odds, and says, "Huh, three percent." You know what? There's probably some truth to that. And if you're a good GM, you'll say like that probably should give me some sense of how I should approach the trade deadline and look at building my roster for for next year and beyond. But again, it's also not destiny, so you need to just like. That's all. It's it's more about the teams in the middle that I actually think it's 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 the it's the bigger issue for where it's the I think you know a team like the Yankees comes to mind where I could see if they sweep the Red Sox this weekend, which is like fully within the realm of possibilities, it will drastically change their playoff odds and we'll be having a fully different conversation on Monday. Right, but if they win the next four games against one of the better teams in baseball, like yes, that should change their odds. I don't see the problem with that part. That's fine. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, 
simple and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB.